Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Where God Works, Foreign Places, Foreign People. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 10th, 2010. In his book, What Jesus Meant, from the year 2006, the historian Gary Wills describes the Apostle Paul as a quote-unquote heroic traveler who logged more than 10,000 miles spreading the message of God's love. But in the epistle for this week, Paul isn't going anywhere at all. He's in jail. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.9 that he's chained like a criminal in a Roman prison. But remarkably, he's not concerned about his confinement, for he also says that he's confident that the word of God is not imprisoned. Maybe this is because a few days after his conversion, God promised him that he would suffer much for his kingdom, and that, quote-unquote, prison and hardship awaited him in every city. Acts 20, verse 23. And so it did. In the book of Acts, Luke records at least eight murder attempts on Paul's life. But you'd be hard-pressed to name a single individual other than Jesus who did more to shape human history. At the risk of oversimplification, you could say that the drama of God's elect people, Israel, revolves around two turning points in two places. First, after 430 years of slavery, God liberated Israel from Egypt in the Exodus around 1400 BC. And then, 800 years later, there was tragic exile to Babylon in the year 586 BC. Exile and Exodus reverberate throughout the Bible as two paradigms of the way that God works in human history and even in our own personal histories. The Exodus, of course, was a dramatic liberation from oppression and exploitation, a miraculous deliverance, a regal display of God's mighty acts of power. It's a story of divine intervention to shatter the enemy, work wonders, and break the powers of bondage. No wonder it's celebrated at Passover, even today, by the Jews. The psalmist for this week proclaims, How awesome are your deeds! Psalm 66, verse 3. The Exodus gives us every reason to hope and pray for God's dramatic act of salvation, both in the world at large and in our personal lives. But with exile, the geography of salvation changed. For the ancient Hebrews, the destruction of Jerusalem and deportation to pagan Babylon was beyond comprehension. What had happened? Where were God's mighty acts of power? How could he surrender them to a pagan nation? Exile to Babylon began a period of subjugation, servitude, banishment, and captivity. It signaled failure, isolation, loneliness, and even punishment. Certainly, it meant despair for the elite Jews who were deported and for the common people of the land left behind in the rubble of Jerusalem. How 
was a Hebrew deported to Babylon to understand exile? In the lectionary this week, Jeremiah offers advice that few people probably wanted to hear. Writing from besieged Jerusalem, he sent a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jeremiah tells the exiles to embrace their disaster rather than to resist it. There was salvation in the strange place of Babylon as well as in the familiar place of Israel. He tells them to let go of their past and to accept their new circumstances. He says that contrary to all appearances, despite the foreign geography, at that moment in their story of salvation, they were better off in pagan Babylon than in holy Jerusalem. God was still working, only now in the most unlikely of ways and in the most improbable of places. Celebrating God's mighty acts of power, his decisive miracles of deliverance is easy. Who doesn't long for a personal exodus, punctuated by a divine exclamation point, whether that be for work, at home, a marriage, finances, children, the list is nearly endless. But we know that sometimes things don't work out as we wish, or as we think they should, or as we pray. History can take a bitter turn. Catastrophe can overtake us, sometimes of our own making, other times for apparently no reason at all. Living in exile then, far from home, in a strange space or place, bereft of all one considers good and familiar, is difficult. Living in exile demands revised expectations, courage to believe that God is still at work, no matter how bleak the circumstances, learning a new language and grammar, much as the Jews settling into Babylon learned a new language, in order to articulate your new experience. Perseverance over the long haul. Living in exile also requires hope about the future, no matter how dark the present. That too was part of God's message through Jeremiah in 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. That future was far off for those Babylonian exiles. Seventy years and two generations before the Persian king Cyrus would rout the Babylonian regime and permit the Hebrews to return home. A story that's told in the book of Ezra in Nehemiah. Hope for the future is also an admission that we can't have it all now in the present. Some of the exiles, of course, never returned home. 
We might imagine that God needed Paul out of that Roman jail so that he could proclaim the gospel. We might think that the God of Israel worked only in Israel on home turf. But Jeremiah reminds us that God works always and everywhere in exodus from Egypt, but also in exile to Babylon. God is at work not only in foreign places like a Roman jail or a Babylonian displacement camp, but also in foreign people like Naaman, the Old Testament reading for this week. Naaman epitomizes the foreign outsider for several reasons. He was a military officer from pagan Syria, a major enemy of Israel. The narrator praises Naaman in glowing terms. Quote, he was a valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his masters and highly regarded. And then he adds a shocking detail. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan officer? Yes. Finally, Naaman had a skin disease. This disease no doubt caused Naaman some medical problems, but his real complications were social, religious, and moral. For people with such impurities were stigmatized as ritually unclean and therefore excluded from God's community and its worship. 2 Kings chapter 5. So this great man embarked on a state visit with opulent gifts to visit the king of Israel, only to encounter a nameless little girl from Israel who advised him to seek healing from the Hebrew prophet Elisha. The irony is unmistakable, and Naaman's response is predictable. When this anonymous Hebrew child instructed the renowned military officer not to seek help from the corridors of political power, but from a religious prophet who told him to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River, he was enraged. But in the end, Naaman obeyed. He was healed, and then he confessed, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So once again, we see God's mysterious means. Naaman the outsider joined the insider community. A nameless little girl advised an important military leader. And the prophetic power of Elisha subverted social and political conventions. These stories confound our expectations. We should never forfeit our prayers for Exodus deliverance. But neither should we forget that God can be just as present in exilic banishment. God works in exiled darkness and in exodus deliverance, in a dank Roman prison, as well as in 10,000 miles of gospel itinerating. Anyone who considers himself an insider should take warning from these outsider stories. The Apostle Paul, the consummate Christian insider, even contemplated the harrowing possibility of his own banishment to outsider perdition. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24-27 In keeping with these strange stories, in the gospel for this week, Jesus heals ten lepers. 
and somehow by now were not surprised that only the Samaritan foreigner gave thanks to God. Luke 17, 11 to 19. For books this week, I review Atul Gawande. The title of the book, The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Right. New York Metropolitan Books, 2009, 209 pages. Before my wife had knee surgery, the surgeon handed her a magic marker and said, please put an X on the knee we're operating on. Then, when my daughter had surgery for a fractured clavicle, the nurse handed her a magic marker and told her to write the word yes on the correct shoulder. Why the change, I asked. Because to some people, an X means no, she explained with a chuckle. How obvious. I was also amazed that in one of the best surgery facilities in the world, at least four or five times, different hospital personnel asked my daughter the exact same questions. Tell us your name, your date of birth, and why you're here. It felt strange that in such a highly sophisticated place, such radically simple measures were taken. But I now have an inkling that the hospital had instituted something like Atul Gawande's prescription for simple checklists for highly complex tasks. Gawande, a general surgeon and professor at Harvard, observes the daunting complexity of medicine. Today there are now over 6,000 drugs and 4,000 medical and surgical procedures. An Israeli study documented that a patient in ICU requires 178 individual actions in a single 24-hour day. Rates for complications are low, but there are now about 230 million surgeries performed, year, performed per year worldwide. So even a low percentage of a big number means that there are many complications and deaths that are preventable with a simple checklist. Checklists originated in the aviation industry, and as Gawande shows, are now used in building skyscrapers, restaurants, rock concert stage sets, and financial analysis. We can thank nurses for the most basic and important medical checklist, the patient chart with our four vital signs, pulse, blood pressure, temperature, and respiration. In 2001, a study at Johns Hopkins documented dramatically lower rates of Lyme infection with the use of simple checklists. Gawande eventually joined a WHO safe surgery checklist study that resulted in a 19-point checklist that was tested in eight hospitals around the world. The results were remarkable and published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009. But even today, only about 10% of hospitals use the WHO checklists. The culture of the rock star surgeon with expert audacity runs deep, Gawande admits. How can anything so simple be so important? In the last chapter of the book, Gawande makes a final appeal based upon his own surgical practice. And I quote, 
I have yet to get through a week in surgery without the checklists leading us to catch something we would have missed. Last week, as I write this book, we had three catches in five cases. The author is Atul Gawande, The Checklist Manifesto. For films this week, I review a movie called Encounterpoint from 2006. It's a film from Israeli and Palestinians. Stop the violence. That's the message of this documentary film about Palestinians and Israelis who are united in their support for nonviolence. As one bereaved Israeli mother whose son was killed by a Palestinian sniper put it, what should I do with my pain? Search for revenge and continue the whole cycle of violence? Or do we choose another path to prevent further death and pain to other parents? She's part of a coalition called Bereaved Palestinian and Israeli Families Forum, which, among its many activities, brought together 500 families that had lost loved ones to conflict, 200 from each side. The film also introduces a joint Israeli-Palestinian youth magazine called Windows, Seeds of Peace, in the movement for realistic religious Zionism. These brave people demonstrate the power of personal story and specifically draw upon the lives of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela in their efforts to move beyond anger, humiliation, and violence. The film is in Arabic, Hebrew, and English with English subtitles. The title of the movie from Israel and Palestine, In Counterpoint, And in keeping with our theme of exile, we've posted a poem this week by a poet called Evan Boland, born in 1944. Evan Boland is Irish and a professor in humanities at Stanford University, where she directs the creative writing program. She's published some nine volumes of poetry. The title of the poem, The Immigrant Irish, like oil lamps, we put them out the back of our houses, of our minds. We had lights better than, newer than, and then a time came, this time, and now we need them. Their dread makeshift example. They would have thrived on our necessities. What they survived we could not even live. By their lights, now it is time to imagine how they stood there, what they stood with, that their possessions may become our power, cardboard, iron, their hardships parceled in them, patience, fortitude, long-suffering in the bruise-colored dusk of the new world and all the old songs, and nothing to lose. The title of the poem, The Immigrant Irish, by Evan Boland of Stanford University. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 10th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.